This is episode five of the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast. The podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. And we are your hosts, Caitlin Deal and James Lee. Hey, Joe. How you doing today? Great, thanks. I'm calling to see if you'd like to donate this year to our pastor's love gift. Absolutely. Uh, just curious, what do you have in mind for the gift? I thought we could do something a little different this year. Joe, I was thinking the same thing. Have you heard about Bishop's Clergy Convocation? I think she'll really enjoy going there, and we can give her the registration fee as a gift. That sounds great. Sign me up. Thanks, Joe. Bye. Have a good day. Featuring plenary and small group sessions led by author, coach, and consultant Susan Balmont in a special event presented by the Music Paradigm, the 2017 Bishop's Clergy Convocation will be held January 23rd to 25th at the Ocean Place Resort in Long Branch, New Jersey. Pastors will experience a life-changing renewal, learning, and fellowship. Be sure to talk to your pastor about Bishop's Convocation and see if he or she is interested in participating. Merry Christmas, and we hope to see your pastor in the new year. So we are so excited to have Nicole Coldwell-Gross today as the Director of Mission and Community Development at the United Methodist Church of Greater New Jersey. Nicole resources and partners with spiritual leaders and mission work in the community, and she's an avid reader of poetry and literature and always on the hunt for the perfect latte, which I'm very impressed and want to hear more about. Where, so what is the best <laughs> latte you've had so far, Nicole? Ever? Honestly, probably in Calcutta. They had a chai latte. This was right after Obama was elected the first time, and they wrote Obama in the foam, and I took a picture of it. It felt like a moment. So not only was it delicious, but it was politically significant. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm a chai latte. I cannot I go a day without them. Um, so, <laughs> so I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, your latte drinking experience isn't just a flavor, but about the whole experience. Right? Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, so again, Nicole, uh, it's... So great to have you here today. What led you to embrace mission in your career? My dad is an immigrant to this country from Cameroon. He came here when he was 17 to go to school. And I grew up in Michigan, which lacks a lot of diversity. Um, and so it created a worldview that most of my peers did not have. I was interested in what was happening and. West Africa simply because I had family there. And so th that probably was the first layer of the world is bigger than myself. And if it's bigger than me, then, and God is bigger than me, then God must be involved in the world in ways that I want to understand and learn more about. And so that really led me to begging my parents to let me do my first mission trip away from home at 13. And there were five of us, so maybe they wanted me to go for, for the summer as well. Because <laughs> when I look back, I would, I'm like, I'm not letting my kids uh, go that young. Um, but that was a, a groundbreaking experience uh, for me. I did a lot of domestic mission in high school, especially in downtown Detroit. And then when I went to college at Mount Holyoke, there were a lot of opportunities to uh, be in mission, not just Christian mission, I think, but uh, in mission in a secular sense as well. So I went to Dubai for this women's education worldwide conference, and uh, I really felt like we were in mission. We were teaching 
a group of students at Dubai Women's College uh, how to develop their own student government. And we went there armed, like we were going to give them all of this information. First meeting, we sit down and they take off their hijabs and are like, so look, we know what your agenda is, but we just want to know how to lead men. We were like, what? Like, what about the founding fathers? That's what we're here to discuss. And they were savvy, intelligent, smarter than us, really better than us at government. And it really taught me that mission, you can go there with a desire to share, but you cannot go there with a desire to be an authority. You've already lost. Um, and that's, that's shaped the way I approach mission in church today. I remember when I was little, I'll say when I was like maybe six or seven, uh, there was this church leader. She was a Sunday school teacher, came up to me and said, you know, James, I think you're going to become a missionary. Mm -hmm. And that terrified me to tears because the image that I had of a missionary was someone who went into the jungles where the cannibals live, yeah. uh, set up posts, <laughs> and, <Poor> and <laughs> proclaim the gospel to these people at risk of death or right. being not even just death, but being like eaten alive. Right. So, so terrified me. And, uh, this is the image that I had of what missions mm -hmm. looks like now. Um, maybe that was applicable a couple centuries ago, but, I guess, what does mission look like today? I mean, does it, that's not the only thing that encompasses mission, right? What, what, what does mission look like in the 21st century, I guess is my question. I, I think that's, that's so important to bring up that distinction and to bring up that image because while it's a, an old image, I still think that for most people that's what comes up. And you imagine the kind of like safari gear mm -hmm. <laughs> when you think mm -hmm. of, of missionaries. Yeah. Um, and so it's, re it's, it's really changed a lot. So we know now that the mission field of choice for Christians around the world is actually North America. And it's North America because... What? Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So there's this really great book, um, The Forgotten Ways, which talks about um, how Christians in places that we used to see as you know the jungles that we need to send missionaries to... They're now sending missionaries to us because our rate of kind of, I won't say atheists, but the nons. One, that's that's been a big shift. And two, I think mission for many centuries was associated with oppression and with cultural oppression, political oppression. Right, right. And so um, I hopefully, I think many mainline denominations and also Christians, as our faith evolves and our understanding of scripture evolves, we don't want that to be a part of our mission. And we re reject that that's uh, part of what Jesus was calling us to do. Um, so I think that's another big shift as well. And so when you think about mission in North America and the fact that so many, especially younger people, do not identify with the church, are not ident you know, interested at all in, in the church, the mission is really next door. It's really across the street. And so uh, the first part of your question is not even what does mission look like, but where is mission today? And that's here. Um, who is it with? It's definitely with, not with, you know, the 
one to five-year-old set or even the elementary school set. It's that 18 to 35-year-old range who may have some affiliation with church. Many do not at all who are the group that we have to focus on if we're not only going to be relevant in our communities and witness, but also if our churches are going to grow. Um, so it, I think that's the, the where and the who and the why is still the same. Even if it's the jungle or it's the Starbucks next door, the, the group has changed, but why we do it has not changed. What has really shifted, and this is where I think a lot of churches get stuck, is how we do mission. So I remember my husband and I were serving a church in Atlantic City, and there were a lot of well-meaning Christians on the boardwalk who were passing out tracts and asking people, if you die today, do you know where you're going? I don't know about you, but that's one, scary as hell. (laughs) Two, it's not compelling to me. It doesn't attract me to a relationship with Christ. It scares me. And uh, that's not good news. When I I think about good news in in the most simple sense in the meaning of the gospel. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing somewhere that, say, 200 years ago, that was actually a very effective form of evangelism because because there were so many diseases and people did die, you know, left and right sometimes. So so the question of what if you die tomorrow was a very relevant question. But if you ask me that, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, not that it could happen. I mean, of course it could happen, but it's not as compelling. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It just feels like you're just fear mongering. It, it does. And it's more probably relevant, you know, to ask something about their social media or will you post this or something? Because yeah. our, our sense of um, longevity and mortality has certainly shifted as well. And, and I think, you know, I spoke earlier about that community piece. I think before we evangelize people, people really want to know that we're interested in them as human beings. And if we can be effective at that, um, then I think people can ask the question, so what do you believe? What is this place? Where are you all gathering? And we've we've done a, a disservice, I think, not just in the track giving out and the scaring of people, but also in creating distance between them and us with the church, as opposed to getting to know them first and then bridging that to the church. And and that's the challenge of mission today. Yeah, I'm really glad when you brought up that mission can be overseas, but also can be very local and that mission could be in your backyard. So what are some things that churches can do to start the process of getting their young adults, getting their youth involved in mission, say they don't want to go overseas, but, you know, in their backyard? So we know that especially for that 18 to 35 year old group, um, mission is the primary gateway into the church. And not just the church in terms of membership, but in terms of relationship with Christ. And sometimes when I say that, people are like, well, I'm 65 and I like mission. I'm like, of course you do. Because mission in general, I think, attracts people and brings all different kinds of of people together. I think one of the primary things uh, that I'm most excited about in my work today uh, are hope centers. So uh, we are looking across the 563 churches that we have in this region and thinking about if our churches were systematically 
working on some of our largest social issues, challenges in concert, and we're pooling their resources, their assets, um, whether that's people in their pews or people uh, in their offices, uh, as well as you know financial resources to, I think, attack some of those challenges head on, what's the kind of impact that we could have? Um, we've been talking about especially early childhood education. And we've been piloting in Patterson, New Jersey with uh, Camp YDP, uh, which is a a child development center founded by a United Methodist pastor. And for the past 60 years has been doing incredible community development work. And there have been churches that have come, who have donated their time, who have been in mission with um, the staff and the children there and the families there. And what that does is that it builds the entire community. And as this organization and the way that they they run, the way that they minister to the community and families grows, it then becomes a model for another Hope Center in Newark, New Jersey, or Atlantic City, New Jersey, or wherever else we can dream uh, of having a very real and tangible example of what it looks like to be in mission to the community. And some pastors have reached out and said, you know, what resources do we have? So one of the, the resources that we have physically are facilities. We have, you know, all of these churches where people could come and receive services. So it's a matter of then organizing that in, a, in an umbrella fashion where people could access it easily. And so, you know, we no longer want to rely on uh, any other organization to do the work that God's people could be doing. Um, and, And that's exciting and that gives hope. And I think when people see us doing that and doing things that are directly affecting people in the community, then they begin to say, well, who are these people, you know, who call themselves Christians? I'm interested. I have a friend who is battling with addiction why are you doing this work and not some secular organization? Or I have a child and I can't afford quality childcare. Why are you offering this and not some secular organization? And I think that's real mission. So what are some ways that, uh, say I'm a, a church pastor and uh, in, a, in a town and I really want our church to be involved in mission or in in these hope centers in some way. What are some ways that the local church uh, communities can participate in hope centers? So the primary mechanism for getting involved in hope centers now is communities of hope training. And communities of hope training is a six-month strategic planning initiative that really teaches a congregation how to be a community developer, how to identify their assets, how to uh, connect with other partners, uh, how to write grants as well as fundraise so that they can uh, begin developing their own Hope Center. And at the end of this training, uh, with their successful completion, they're commissioned by our bishop And they have access to a seed grant, which really helps them kick off their work. Um, So that's one primary way. And then another way is for existing organizations that are already doing this kind of work to become affiliates uh, of our uh, Communities of Hope initiative. 
So that would be as simple as, you know, emailing me <laughs> or calling me uh, so that we can learn more about your organization and how uh, your work can uh, begin to partner with the hope centers that we already uh, are developing. And, and I think a just to back up a bit, even before we get to Hope Center, so before you register for Communities of Hope training, your job is to have every leader in your community know your name and know your church's name. So the principal of the local school should know who you are. The you know uh, chief of police should know who you are. You should have had lunch with the mayor by now. You should have connected with all of these people that have incredible influence as to how community development or mission happens in your community. And relationships are key to mission. And so I would say that you know the the groundswell happens with relationship building and and that's that's a major a major part of what you what you can do as um, a faith community and also with communities of hope training it just sets you up to really run faster and further if you have great relationships already that is a very tough thing you know the first you're appointed to a new church and uh you have to worry about the worship service. You have to worry about, okay, small groups. You have to worry about um, remembering the, people's names, remembering people's <laughs> name in your own church. But it's so true that you know, to be missional, you have to really think outside of your church building. You have to think about your community, your your library, your police department, your fire department, your your mayor, all those things. And I think it becomes hard when it's just you doing it. But I think it's a lot easier when you're able to really activate the power of the people of God. I mean, there's always somebody sitting in your pew, especially. So a lot of our churches are smaller and and are in smaller towns and everybody is related. I've just learned that in church. Never talk about anybody because you're talking (laughs) to be talking to their cousin, grandmother's brother's friend. And I mean, it's it's those it's those relationships that move mission so much further. I found when my husband and I first got to Hamilton Memorial United Methodist Church in Atlantic City, and there were 27 people in attendance on the first Sunday. And a couple months later, you know, a dead body is dropped in front of the church. And it's just, it's not the kind of church that a lot of people were running to on Sunday morning. Mm. And his focus as a senior pastor was getting to know people and figuring out what relationships move things forward in this community. And in, in a lot of communities, sometimes it's those people with positional power and other times it's those people with personal power. And so, you know, when we looked around our community and dreamed about building a garden, dreamed about creating a literacy program for kids in our neighborhood. It was a relationship with a restaurant owner, a pastor of a different denomination, and the casino that actually moved things forward. Wow. And when I look back now, you know, in that literacy program, you know, the first year there were 80 kids in it. And the second year it grew even more and there were paid college student staff. You know, there's now there's 12 
you know, beds in this community garden, amphitheater, the churches uh, just finished the playground um, right after uh, he was appointed to a, a different church in Montclair. And it was those missional relationships that changed the face of that church and really the community. So I, I know that's hard. Um, I was the complaining wife and associate pastor, like, so when are you coming home? I know that we say have all those meetings, but you know, I have other things to do. Let's balance childcare and all this other work, but it, it, it pays off. It really does. So if there was like three things that there's like so much about mission. So if there's like three resources, what's some things that they can get started right now? In Atlantic City, when we came up with the idea for a freedom school, this literacy program, it was because we realized we had so many retired educators. And really, it's embarrassing. It took us a long time to figure out, oh, you're also a former teacher and you too. We had a former school board president. So I think part one first step is to really organize the assets within your congregation. I also think it, 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 this amazes me. There are so many free demographic reporting programs that you can look into. Uh, one that is incredible is Mission Insight. And with Mission Insight, let me correct that. That's free for United Methodist pastors. I don't know if it's if, if it's free for others. That's Mission Insight, right? I-N-S-I-T-E? Yes. That's right. Okay. And Mission Insight is this free demographical reporting tool, which will tell you things like the highest level of education in your community, the literacy rate in your community. That was a, I remember, you know, highlighting that when we were trying to figure out what kind of mission will be relevant here in Atlantic City. And the fact that there was one of the lowest literacy rates in the state of New Jersey among adults and children, it really kind of sounded this alarm. This is where we need to start. And I think in addition to kind of connecting with people, learning about the community with those official reports, uh, the third thing I would do is to get to know the unofficial mayors of your community. There's always somebody I mean, where I grew up in Detroit, there was always that like grandmother on the block who never moved, like just sat there <laughs> rocking in her chair, you know, drinking iced tea with, you know, a pound of sugar, telling on everybody, telling everybody's business. And it's, it's those people within the community that have invaluable information. I mean, their reading of the community is just as important as what you'll print off from Mission Insight or what you'll Google about your community. Mm. Um, and their understanding of the history and the breadth of what's happening is vital um, to you doing mission that's relevant, but also mission that connects with the people on the ground. Um, because you can come with your reports <laughs> and your scripture, but if you don't really have an understanding of the kind of cultural hermeneutic that's at work there, you won't connect with people and people think you're crazy, um, which is usually a deterrent to meaningful mission. Yeah. That reminds me of um, a church community that I was a part of. Uh, we sent out a mission team to Haiti, City Soleil, which is uh, where the poorest of the poorest live. It's a very, very broken down community and it's very chaotic and it's run by gangs. But they were able to go there and, you know, do all these and have all these programs because we have a missionary that lives there 
full, full uh, just throughout the year. And uh, he, when he got there, he developed relationship with the gang leaders. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, most most uh, missionaries can't don't last there because they're not willing to do that. But he went there and um, he started a just a motorcycle delivery business, and he hired some of the gang leaders and had them. So when this mission team was there in Haiti, um, they had uh, armed protection while they were walking down the city, of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, walking around the streets of City Soleil. Wow. They had gang members with guns surrounding them. Kind of goes back to what you were saying about, you know, it's not just the mayor and the police chief. There are many other people who are, quote-unquote, in charge of the community, even if it is in a maybe in a violent way, what does it mean to still extend grace and extend a, a relationship with them? Right, and I think you know we we've been unsuccessful in mission because we have looked over those opportunities, and I think the most effective um, missionaries in the modern sense are the most creative. I have this this friend from um, from Princeton who puts up this little sign in his local coffee shop every week and him and his daughter, who I think is maybe two or three, sit there and say, you know, pull up a chair for a free hug um, and a cup of coffee, one sugar. He discriminates against those who might use more than one <laughs> sugar, which I find pretty hilarious. You may not want to do that in your particular mission. Um, but he's he's a pastor um, and is just looking for ways to have conversation with people that's not intimidating because he just found that people are not going to walk into his church and that even just crossing that bridge was pretty intimidating for a lot of people. And it's been amazing the conversations that he's had with people or some that just wanted a hug. And then that leads to, so why are you giving hugs (laughs) or who are you? Mm. And, um, I I remember, you know, talking about this at a, a mission training and people were really, Oh, well, I think that could incite some, you know, unwanted attention or, uh, and it was just amazing how people were really interpreting it. And yet we have a God who, you know, is in throngs of people that are grabbing at him or a God who is touching people who are, you know, battling with leprosy. And we are, I think part of mission is being willing to touch and be touched by other people. Um, not just physically, but even emotionally and spiritually. And we we don't like that. That's very vulnerable. That's scary. Um, and, you know, hanging out with gang leaders requires, I think, an openness to actually be touched by them um, spiritually. And yet that he's the most effective person probably in that community in ministering to them. So... It's it's a lesson for all of us, and you know I'd love to have that protection walking around the streets of my fair. Just pretend that like I'm someone really important. I just yeah, in my Nissan Sentra. That's so fascinating that you were saying you know the willingness to be touched. So recently, you know, we we posted like a video about you know Pokemon Go and how churches take advantage of it. There were many churches who were upset by it because, you know, and the, the realization that you're inviting people into your church building throughout the week when, you know, 
church leaders are not there. If someone comes and gets hurt, they can get sued. So, so a lot of churches are saying we cannot, we will not, uh, you know, condone any kind of welcoming of, uh, you know, people that are not our church members during the week using Pokemon Go as a resource because we can get sued. I don't know. Like it's a, it's a real, it's a real, you know, I guess fear and possibility and something that I can't go on record to say, no, you should still do this or that because you know, it's, there's, there are legal issues, but how do you, how do, how does the church wrestle with that? Because to be in mission, you have to take risks, right? Well, this is where we get to the limits of technology. Cause I wish whoever's listening to this could see my face. Cause it's just, Maybe it's a sound. Womp womp. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, mission is risky. That, that's, I mean, that's what it is. Evangelism is risky. Um, being a follower of Christ is risky. And I think, you know, we have tried to mitigate that risk for centuries uh, to the point where, you know, it's more about our comfort and what's best for the institution of the church than it is about who we might reach in opening those doors. So for those that are, you know, worried about um, the legal ramifications of someone coming in your church because they're looking for Pokemon, that's the same risk that we're taking Sunday morning as someone visits and could slip on your stairs and then sue you. <laughs> so I, I one, I just don't think it's a legitimate kind of claim. Uh, but in addition, that is the call. It's, it's a risk-taking call. It's not a comfortable call. And the onus is on us as the people of God to experience more of that risk than those who are coming in. And I think it's because we don't appreciate what a risk others are taking who know nothing about our church. I mean, my, my husband um, first really started going to church regularly as a teenager. And so he talks about how intimidating it was when people would say, God is good all the time. And he's like, oh, you're waiting for me to say something? <laughs> like, oh, okay, there's, there's a script that I don't know. And we push people out of church all the time unintentionally when we expect them to behave and be codified by our Christian script. And until we're willing to take that risk, we're going to continue to watch our churches shrink. And it's the churches that are opening them up to, you know, those who are looking for Pokemon and those who are looking for grace and forgiveness and, you know, play a safe place for their children or whatever the issue is that will find that radical growth. And, and for, I mean, mission is also about growth. And when we see Jesus involved in things, it grows. The crowds grow. When, you know, the first church in the book of Acts really starts worshiping and living, living in uh, a way that ministers and really witnesses to the community. It says, you know, and their church, it grew by this many people, this many people. So we don't like to talk about that sometimes, but there's a responsibility to open the church so that we can see it reach its fullest, its fullest potential, both missionally and metrically. Yeah, I think it was Acts 2 where it says, uh, after Peter gives that awesome sermon, I think it was like 3,000 people were baptized. And I, I I remember just reading that recently, like, 
Wait, three, that's, that's a lot of people, people. Yeah. to be baptized in one day. Like It must have taken a couple of days to baptize all of them. Do they just all throw them in the river at once and just kind of say, you're all baptized? Or is it like, I don't know. But yeah, you, you can't ignore the numbers. That's true. I think I just want to especially encourage churches who are looking around and seeing that they're primarily made up of one generation and thinking, how are we going to attract people that are 18 to 35 and our average age is 65 or 75? Mm, right. um, and recently I was teaching this, uh, this course on Marion Wright Edelman's book, The Sea is So Wide and My Boat is So Small. The, the purpose of this course was to equip congregations with tangible ways to be in mission with children and families, especially children that are at risk. And um, this one woman, she's not Methodist. Um, she's a part of a, a large non-denominational church. And she talked about how the church had gone through a transition where everybody was in their 40s and 50s, and they started focusing on children and family. And she felt excluded from that. She didn't have any children. You know, this used to be a kind of a family church where everybody knew everybody, and now they're going after these other people and people that were not her age. And the resources and the assets were aligned around that group. Mm. And I think one thing that really scares people away from mission is looking at that vision and saying, where am I in it? Because if, if mission to young people or whomever is so important, maybe I don't fit the, the group that we're going after at this time. What are you saying about me? Am I yesterday's mission project? Am I still relevant to God? Is what I have to offer still relevant? And I just want to say yes, 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 and yes. Um, we have focused on millennials and young people because it's it's really important and we see that demographic missing but the other part of that equation is that we need people of all ages uh, within the community within the church community to be involved in that mission and it doesn't mean that you're kind of over the hill missionally it it does mean that we need your wisdom, your experience, your missional heart uh, just as much now as when you were 18 to 35. And I just, I, I want to remind uh, anyone who's, who's listening and pastors who are listening uh, to be really sensitive to that and how people feel when we talk about Pokemon Go, when we talk about other things that are really geared towards a younger crowd, making sure that we also recognize we have a missional responsibility to people of all ages and that God wants all of us, all of us, and no one is excluded uh, from that call. Awesome. Thank you. Again, Nicole, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we just have one last question for you, and this is a question sure. we ask all our guests, um, and uh, that is, if you could only have one dish for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what would it be? Wow. So full disclosure, I'm five months pregnant and this is just an evil question. It's just <laughs> evil. I blame you and Lucifer for coming up with this. Um, <laughs> honestly, my favorite thing in the world 
is a medium lamb burger with, oh my gosh, with tzatziki sauce and just the right amount of cheese, arugula, and a really kind of, so a maduro, but like a really, the sweet plantains on top. You can tell that I've eaten this. You're like it's, visualizing oh this in gosh. your hands right my now. My mouth is watering this. as you're so good. <laughs> I think I could probably eat that for the rest of my life. All right. Uh, again, uh, that's Nicole Caldwell-Gross, uh, Director of Mission for the United Methodist Church of Greater New Jersey. If you need to reach her, uh, her email is ncaldwellgross, that's uh, N-C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L-G-R-O-S-S at gnjumc.org. Um, thank you again, Nicole, for being on the show. It was awesome. Thank, thank you. you, guys. This was really fun. Really, really fun. Thank you. <laughs> what is Team Vital? Team Vital is a resource that will bring congregations together and help leaders create a strategic ministry plan. As part of Team Vital, congregations will come alongside one another as they assess their own communities and ministry assets, become equipped for effective ministry, plan future ministry, receive technical support for putting their plans into action, and as a result, grow in their vitality. Team Vital will also help leaders create a strategic ministry plan using the five markers of vitality, worship, making new disciples, small groups, mission, giving. Each church receives individual support, monthly consulting, and other resourcing opportunities for the conference. Churches will then regroup periodically to assess their progress and share lessons learned. Then they can learn from each other, collaborate, support, and hold each other accountable to pursue their ministry plans. It's all about working together, and that is Team Vital.